For a while now, we've been focused on great stories from God's Word in the Old Testament. Today is going to be the last of those messages just for a little while. I've been blessed as we've considered who God is and what God has done and how this applies to us. Uh, For the next few weeks, we're going to turn our attention just a bit. We'll be telling you more about that next week. And then, Lord willing, I'll return back to this series of messages and we'll continue our study and some of these great stories from God's word in the Old Testament. But today I want to invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. And the message today is entitled, God Listen to Your Servant's Prayer. And we're going to consider this account in 1 Kings chapter 8 of the dedication of the temple that Solomon had built in obedience to God and what we can learn about God through this in our own prayer life to him. Often when tragedy strikes, people coping with the circumstances will communicate to those who have been affected that they are in their thoughts and prayers. We hear that idea of thoughts and prayers quite a bit, but unfortunately, it's come under attack as of late. And after the shooting in New Zealand that took place recently, the congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sent out this tweet. At first, I thought of saying, imagine being told your house of faith isn't safe anymore. But I couldn't say imagine because of Charleston, South Carolina, of course, Pittsburgh, Sutherland Springs. What good are your thoughts and prayers when they don't even keep the pews safe? There was another piece by CNN that was just evaluating how this phrase has come under fire And it was entitled, How Thoughts and Prayers Went from Common Condolence to Cynical Meme. Who would have ever thought that prayer or communicating with God would become the subject of ridicule? Whoever thought that we would be living in a day when people are criticized simply for believing and having faith and praying to God and asking God to act on our behalf? Now, admittedly, in some ways, prayer is one of the most mysterious aspects of the Christian life. There are parts of it that are difficult for us to understand. And sometimes we may wonder, if we're honest, does God hear our prayers? We might wonder, do our prayers really make a difference? Are they making any impact on the world and so on? We might even ask the question, why should we pray? Well, the reason that we should pray biblically is because this is how God has ordered it, that his people would communicate with him, that our prayers are connected to what God is doing in the world. They're not just offering up words, but they are participating somehow in the mystery of God's will, that his work be carried out in the world and they have an eternal impact. So God has told us this is what prayer is. And then God has instructed us to pray. You remember the words of Jesus where he said that we are to ask, seek, and knock. And that when we ask, we'll be answered. And when we seek, we will find. And when we knock, the door will be opened. So this is how God has designed our relationship with him. And I would say to you today that prayer is talking to God. Then it's listening to God. And then it's waiting on God. Let me say that again. Prayer is talking to God. It's listening to God. And then it is waiting on God. So prayer impacts our relationship with God. It also affects our relationships with other people. 
And then it participates in God's plan in the world and in eternity. King Solomon was given the responsibility to build the temple. David was not able to do it, his father, because he was a man of war. But God gave Solomon that responsibility to build the temple in Jerusalem for the worship of God. And that took place somewhere around a thousand years before the time of Jesus on the earth. And when that temple was built, he comes before the Lord with this prayer of dedication. The building of the temple was glorious and the temple was designed for the worship of God by his people. First Kings chapter eight is the dedication of that temple and Solomon's prayer on behalf of the people of God. So he assembled the elders and the leaders of the people to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the city of David to the temple that had been constructed. They also brought the furnishings that had been in the tabernacle. All of this had been specifically ordered and prescribed by God. And by this point in history, the Ark of the Covenant had only the Ten Commandments in it, which had been given to Moses from God himself. And when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud of the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, the cloud of the glory of the Lord was representative of the Shekinah glory of God. It it was God's presence manifest among his people. And, And it was God saying to his people that this was the place where he would come to meet with them. And it was a symbol of God's presence in the world. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire congregation of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. This was a common posture of prayer in the Old Testament. They would at times stand with their arms stretched up toward heaven as though they were beseeching the very throne of God itself, that they were hearing from God and receiving whatever he had. At some point in this prayer, Solomon transitions from his hands stretched out to heaven and looking up to heaven to a kneeling posture because it says a little bit later on in the passage that he got up after he had prayed. So I think the point here is not particularly what our physical posture is in prayer. The point is, what is our attitude of surrender to God in prayer? Whether we have our arms stretched out or we're down on our knees or we're laying flat on the floor or whatever our position might be simply with our heads bowed, it's a recognition of who God is. And here we have the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And here's what my hope is as we go through this passage together in the next few minutes. A lot of times when you hear about prayer, you you get discouraged because you realize how deficient your own prayer life is. Or maybe you just hear you ought to pray more, you ought to pray harder, you ought to be more diligent in prayer. You just walk out saying, I'm a loser spiritually pretty much. Uh, I just am not measuring up. That is not my goal today. My goal today is to teach you something about God or remind you some things about God that would compel you and encourage you to walk more closely with him, to understand what it is that God is doing in prayer and some things about who God is so that we can draw close to him and have our prayers answered and experience the very presence of God in our lives. So the first truth I want to show you here is that prayer appeals to the character of God. Prayer appeals to the character of God. Now let's pick back up reading in verse 23. And the Bible says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. 
Verse 24, you have kept what you promised to your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him and you fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, keep what you promised to your servant, my father David. You will never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take care to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, verse 26. Now, Lord God of Israel, please confirm what you promised to your servant, my father, David. Solomon begins with a confession of sorts. And his confession is very clear that God is unique and he is unchanging. And there is no other God in heaven above or on earth below. The psalmist said in Psalm 86 and verse 8, Lord, there is no one like you among the gods and there are no works like yours for you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Here's something I have a sneaking suspicion of about our prayer lives. The reason many of us are weak in prayer as we are or don't pray as much as we know that we should or our relationship is not as connected as it should be according to what the Bible teaches us It's because our concept of God has been minimized. Our idea of the character of God is lessened to the point that we're not particularly driven to come before him. And instead, we do things in our own way and in our own time. And we miss out on this great ability that we have to come before the one true living God. Now, the idea of the exclusivity of God in this culture that we live in is not a popular one. In fact, we hear the teaching all the time that all religions basically teach the same thing and we should be unified. We should never be unified in error. And that is not, in fact, true. We've also heard that all religions have spiritual truth, but none have collectively all of the truth. We've heard that all religions are too culturally and historically conditioned to be true. We've heard that it's wrong to insist that what we are saying is right or should be believed or certainly that someone else should be convinced to believe and to follow after the same way. Uh, We've been told that if we believe in only one God, that's bigotry and hatred toward other people. And all these things, we're drawn away from the character of God to the way of the world. And yet the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, And verse six, yet for us, there is one God, the father, all things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and all things are through him and we exist through him. So you see, there is only one true living God. And when we come to him in prayer, what we have access to is the king over all of the universe, the the one who holds all of eternity, the sway of it all in his hands. And Solomon appeals here to this God as the one who is the faithful God. He's the one who's faithful to a thousand generations. He's the one who promised that there would always be one on the throne of David. Now, we realize that that was broken in succession from a physical standpoint in terms of human beings, but it was perpetually and eternally fulfilled in Jesus. And that was the promise after all to begin with, that the Messiah would come through the nation of Israel, that he would rise to the throne of David, that he would occupy that throne forever. And even now he's seated at the right hand of God, the father in heaven. 
So Solomon is appealing to that character. And it's interesting that much of this prayer, that is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, appeals to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, written primarily by Moses. And what that teaches us is that there is much to be learned in prayer as we come to the scripture. I think it's one of the best ways to learn how to pray is to study the words in the Bible. And sometimes when you're like I am and your mind wanders and your thoughts are in a thousand places and you don't feel particularly like praying that day, when you come to the word, you find a guide for how you can pray. And I would encourage you if you feel like you're stale and not as alive in your prayer life right now as you'd like to be, just to begin with the character of God and walk through the scripture, finding an idea about God and meditating on that and focusing on that. And for me, less is more. And what I mean by that is it's not necessarily the volume of the things that I consume in a time of devotion, but even if I have one idea or one thought for that day or one verse or even one word that teaches me something about God and I can zero in on that and I can pray toward that and I can meditate on it throughout the day, that helps to shape how I pray because I'm understanding better about the character of God. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The Bible abounds with examples of the faithfulness of God. Thousands of years ago, God said in Genesis 8 and verse 22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter, the day and night shall not cease. We even sang a little bit in a song about that this morning. And I think it's speaking perhaps in part, at least metaphorically, but speaking physically as well of the faithfulness of God, even in the change of the seasons. After we just went through this long and wet and dreary winter, we had encouragement knowing that the faithfulness of God stands and that after winter comes spring. And pretty soon the grass is going to be green and the trees are going to burst out and the flowers are going to begin to bloom. And you know what's going to happen after spring? It's going to get hot as hot can be. And you could drink the humidity in the air from, from the summer that's going to come after that. You know what's going to happen after summer? Fall's going to happen. It's going to get cool. The leaves are going to start to change. Eventually, they're going to fall off the tree. You know what's going to happen again? Winter. And did you know that simple recognition is a recognition that our God is a faithful God who promised that these things would take place? When I went to bed last night and it was dark, you know what I knew was going to happen this morning? sun was going to rise. You know what's going to happen this evening? A little bit later in the evening, the sun's going to go down and it's going to get dark. You know what's going to happen in the morning? Sun's going to come back up and it's going to get bright again. And those things remind us that God is faithful. And while our faith may be tried and tested, our eyes may be filled with tears. Our ears may have a hard time hearing because of the noise of the world. Our plans that we've laid out may get derailed and we may be tempted to doubt our faith. God remains faithful, and he's the faithful God who shows his steadfast love to his people. One of the most comforting verses in all the Bibles, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, where it says, God is love. He's love. We see his love in creation. We see his love day to day as we're sustained. We see his love through his power, but we preeminently see his love through his son. 
For God so loved the world in this way that he gave Jesus, who manifested the very love of God to us by laying down his life for us, that we might know who God is and be reconciled to him by the blood of Jesus. So when you pray, you're praying to the powerful God. Solomon's going to say a little bit later on in 1 Kings 8 and verse 42, so that people would hear of the great name of God and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And how would they know? When we come and we pray, the people will recognize that this is who God is. So when you pray, you can know that God is faithful. His love endures. Your prayers will be answered. And you're appealing to the very character of God himself. But there's a second truth here. Prayer appeals not only to the character of God, but it appeals to the presence of God. Look again here in verse 27. The Bible says, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this temple I've built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may watch over this temple night and day toward the place where you said, my name will be there, and so that you may hear the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Prayer appeals to the presence of God. Now, God was going to make his Shekinah glory and presence known in this temple. But Solomon had sense enough to know that a building that is made with human hands cannot comprehensively contain the power and the presence of God. Yes, it could be a symbol. Yes, it could be a mark that God would meet there with his people, that sacrifices would be made, that offerings would be given, that prayers would be lifted up, that incense would rise. Yes, all of those things were true, but Solomon knew that a building that was made with human hands could not contain all that God is. And yet God promises that he'll make his presence known to his people. Now, there are two concepts in the Bible that are sometimes difficult for us to completely wrap our minds around. One is that God is this transcendent God. This is the uh, unveiling, the revelation that we find, if you will, in the Old Testament, the idea that God is infinite and eternal and invisible and incomprehensible and transcendent in his ways. But then on the other hand is the pleasure of God in making himself known to his people. This idea that God is imminent, that God is present, that God is with his people. And if we looked at that just on the surface of it, we say, well, God is transcendent. He's all these things. And yet God is imminent and he's here with us. Somehow that's contradictory. That's not contradictory at all. It is complementary in the sense that yes, God is all of these things, but the wow factor of it all is that even though he is all these things, he makes his presence known in our midst. And Solomon simply asking of God in verse 28 that God would listen to his prayer and his petition and that he would hear the cry, that he would answer. And because God is omnipresent, he hears, but the request for God to consider and answer specifically is what's being asked. So if you think about prayer just as a general spiritual exercise and 
you're just lifting up general prayers, then what you're not going to get are specific answers. You are appealing to the fact that God is present with you. Now, people like Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, they all experienced significant times in the presence of God. But even for them, it was limited to a degree. Was not Moses shielded, at least in part? He was only able to see the back of the glory of God. Abraham didn't have the written revelation that we have the blessing of having. Uh, The high priest was able to enter into the Holy of Holies, but the only time he could enter into the Holy of Holies was when God specifically said it was prescribed and he was to go in very carefully when he entered into the presence of God. Otherwise, he would be killed because he'd come presumptuously. So when we come to the presence of God, it is a very serious matter. And we approach him, how? On the terms that he has set. And the terms that he has set for us is that we're able to come to the throne of grace boldly and receive help in our time of need because of the blood of Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he gave himself up as the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and the high priest who gave his own life for us, who poured out his own blood on our behalf, who experienced the very wrath of God being laid upon him for what we deserved, takes us into the presence of God. That because of the love of Jesus, we can experience God's presence. So the father invites us into his presence. You remember Jesus when he taught the disciples to pray in the Lord's prayer or the disciples prayer? He instructed them to pray, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Now the way that Jesus instructed us to address the father is through the holiness of his name, but it's also through the intimacy of how we approach him. And Jesus would cry out, Abba, Father. The idea of Abba, Father denotes the intimacy of God with his people. Now, Abba was an everyday, ordinary word that the people would use, and the Jews would have never thought about referring to God as Abba. And I know that in more northerly parts like we're in in West Virginia and maybe even further north, that when people get a little bit older, they start referring to their daddy as dad or father or some other sophisticated type term. But let me tell you, in the South, your daddy's your daddy until you or he dies. He's always your daddy. And what that says is daddy is accessible. Hey, daddy, daddy's going to answer. He's going to listen. He's going to do his best that he can to help you and to provide whatever you might need. And I get it that a lot of people... Uh, don't have a good concept of an earthly father, and that sometimes gives them a difficult time of understanding what the heavenly father is like, what Abba father is like. But in the presence of our God, we find protection and provision and concern. And the good news is, even if you've not experienced what a good earthly father was like, there's a good heavenly father who cares about you, and he will provide for you. He will hear you, and he's never too busy to receive you into his presence. He's never unfocused where he can't listen to what it is that you're saying. So when he says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need, he means it. 
But not only does the Father invite us into his presence, but the Lord Jesus intercedes for us. The same one who was the mediator now lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always, Jesus, lives to make intercession for them. What a beautiful thought that the one who lived and died now lives again. The one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father is interceding on your behalf. He is expressing prayers that need to be prayed on your behalf when he sees the mess of your life and he sees the challenges that you're dealing with and he sees your broken heart and he sees your discouragement and he sees your worries and your concerns. Jesus is interceding for you before the very throne of God. And I love the way John Wilver put it. He said, the doctrine of intercession emphasizes the great truth that Christ never ceases to intercede for his own. And while human prayers on earth are limited in both extent and power, the intercession of Christ knows no limits within the will of God. As an infinite person, Christ is able to concentrate his intercession wholly on each individual believer without any detraction from the needs of any other. In effect, the believer is assured of the intercession of Christ in such a manner as would be true if Christ centered all his love and all his intercession on that one believer. Let let me translate that for you. Jesus prays for you as though you are the only one to be prayed for. It's not diminished or diluted in any way because he's praying for the rest of us. Because he is all-powerful, and he intercedes for us. Oh, but it even gets better than that. Not only does the Father invite us into his presence, and Jesus the Son intercedes for us, but the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Jesus sent him, and not only does the Holy Spirit dwell within us, but he intercedes for us as well. I love these verses from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you don't even know what to pray... The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Now, I know some of y'all have been in the same place I've been in because you shared it with me. That you've been so far down and maybe so far out and so discouraged that you would say, I don't even know what to pray. You might feel like that this morning. Might be a family situation. Might be a financial challenge. Might be a health problem that you're facing. Might be a life circumstance and you don't have the answer. You don't even know what to pray. You're feeling groanings in your soul because the weight is so heavy. And the truth of the word of God is that the Holy Spirit will intercede for you in that circumstance. And he comes to us in our weakness. And he drives us to the presence of God in prayer. And I think a main reason that we don't pray as frequently or as fervently as we should is because we don't recognize how weak we are. You want to know how weak we are? We're just a heartbeat away from eternity. We're just a blood vessel away from it all being over and this life being finished and the next life beginning. 
We have no spiritual power in and of ourselves. It all comes from God. We have no standing before a holy God. It all comes because of Jesus. And the grace that God saves you with is the same grace that God will sustain you with. So it's not as though God saves you by grace and then says, try harder and do better. Just get along as best you can. That's not what God says to you. When God saves you by his grace, he wraps you in his loving arms and he walks with you every moment of every day. And as you cry out to him and you come into his presence, you're coming by invitation and you're coming with intercession and the Holy Spirit is coming alongside of you and he's helping you. And and I love the language of that, the, the meaning of the Holy Spirit helping us. It's like you're carrying a big heavy load. You got a big burden Some of you walked through the doors this morning with a big heavy load, a big burden. We can't see it, but spiritually you're carrying it. That load's so big spiritually you could hardly get through the door. You didn't know what to do. And the Holy Spirit is saying, child of God, follower of Jesus, I'm going to come alongside of you. And I'm going to lift that burden off of you. I'm going to bear that load for you. And I'm going to see you through. Now, it's not promised that it's going to be easy as that happens. But it is promised that God will be faithful. And sometimes along the way, you've got to just make the mark and say, even though I don't understand, I'm going to trust. I can't control circumstances. I can't control people. I can't control anything. But I can trust in God and surrender to him. Oswald Chambers wrote, Our battles are first won or lost in the secret places of our will in God's presence, never in the full view of the world. The Spirit of God seizes me and I am compelled to get alone with God and fight the battle before him. And until I do this, I will lose every time. The battle may take one minute or a year, but it will depend on me surrendering to God. However long it takes, I must wrestle with it before God and I must resolve to go through the hell of renunciation or rejection. Nothing has any power over someone who has fought the battle before God and won it there. The Holy Spirit takes up our need at our deepest and most spiritual level. And here's what's always good. He knows the deepest corner of your life and he still loves you. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit always pray according to the will of God. There's never been a prayer that Jesus Christ has uttered. There's never been a prayer that the Holy Spirit has interceded on your behalf with that has not been according to the will of God. So sometimes even when we're a little bit off base or we get our focus a a little out of focus or we lose track of what it is that we really believe in, the Spirit of God who indwells us will remind us of the God in whom we have trusted and he will pray with us and he will see us through. So I'm saying to you today, whatever darkness you're walking through, whatever burden you're carrying, whatever struggle that you're dealing with, God has not forgotten you and he can see you through, but you got to trust him. Prayer appeals to the presence of God. And then third and finally, prayer appeals to the forgiveness of God. First Kings chapter eight and verse 30 Hear the petition of your servant and your people Israel, which they pray toward this place. 
May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. Now Solomon repeatedly mentions sin in these verses, as does the Bible. And the reason is sin is the major problem in our relationship with God. Jeremy Lellick wrote an article for the Association of Biblical Counselors entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? The famed psychiatrist Carl Menninger posed this inquiry decades ago as he witnessed the disappearance of the word sin from social conversations. Lellick writes, the word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a was a proud word. He's quoting Menninger. It was once a strong word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It's almost disappeared. The word along with the notion, why? Doesn't anybody sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? And then here's what Lelick wrote. Menninger, a medical professional, warned that should this concept sin become eliminated from open cultural discourse, any hope or thought of a moral society would inevitably vanish. He says, while I do not agree with all the assertions or remedies offered by Menninger, his observation was prophetic. Even more sadly, Menninger's concerns did not stop as a trend within secular culture. It's also become popular among mainstream evangelicalism. Whether it is the prosperity preacher teaching promises that do not exist in the Bible, the pastor teaching promises uh, that are feel-good sermons intended to boost self-esteem, or the Christian therapist attributing anger and anxiety or adultery to unresolved psychological issues, a serious consideration of sin in many circles of the church has become unthinkable. And it is hard, he says, to admit, but sin, even in evangelicalism, has become an archaic construct. Church, if we do not understand the problem of sin, we cannot come to the place of repentance. And if we do not come to the place of repentance, we cannot experience salvation. Somebody said Christ died for our sins. As believers, we are to die to our sins. And unbelievers die in their sins. We are all sinners in the sight of a holy God. Solomon acknowledges this in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46. He says, there's no one who does not sin. There are consequences for sin. In the second part of verse 46, he speaks of the anger of God upon the people for what they had done. And sin separates us from God. And if we've not been forgiven in Jesus, then we are eternally separated from him. But when we are reconciled to God, what sin does to us is it hinders our fellowship with God. It quenches the work of the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit who is saddened by the things that we do. And sin ultimately steals confidence from us in prayer. You say, well, how could that be? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 66 and verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So in other words, if I'm holding on purposefully to unconfessed sin. If there's junk in my life, if there's garbage that needs to be cleaned out and I'm not confessing that to God as a believer, if I'm not dealing with that sin, then I am hindering the work of God and my prayers will not be answered in the same way that that they would if I was right with God. So Solomon's appealing for the forgiveness of God. He said, wait a minute. If we are in Christ by faith, does that not mean that Every sin that we have ever committed or every sin that we ever will commit has been forgiven at the cross? The answer is yes. 
the price that Jesus paid on the cross satisfied the wrath of God against sin and his work is finished. There is no further payment necessary. But the Bible says in 1 John 1 and verse 9 that if we will confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1 is written to believers so apparently not only is sin a significant issue in our separation from God eternally, but sin is also a significant issue in our usefulness to God in the here and now. And we're to be holy people as our Father in heaven is holy. We're to be conformed to the image of Jesus and we cannot be conformed to the image of Jesus in this life if we're not dealing with sin. That's part of that sanctification, that ongoing process where God is growing you, shaping you, he's making you more like his son. And he's developing in you the holiness that's been given to you as a gift. So prayer appeals to the forgiveness of God. For some of you here today, the first prayer that you need to pray is a prayer of repentance and faith. You say, Pastor, if I were to die today, I know I wouldn't go to heaven. I couldn't sing that song when we all get to heaven because I'm not going there. I've never been saved. I've never been forgiven. The gospel is for all. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right now, in this place today, you can become a follower of Jesus. That's the first prayer you need to pray. But I just ask you, Christian, follower of Jesus, is there something in your life spiritually that's hindering you? That's that's quenching and grieving the Spirit of God? That's keeping you from being what you should be spiritually? Ask God to forgive you. Ask Him to cleanse you and to restore your relationship with Him. Let's look at verse 52, and I'm going to close. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people, Israel. That's our simple prayer today, friends. Lord, may your eyes be on us and your ears be inclined to hear and your will be our will so that we could see you at work in our lives. A few years ago, we began to talk about prayer more intently, and I'll just say to you, prayer is hard work. It's hard work because we battle against the world and the flesh and the devil, and there's any number of things that can come between us. But we've seen marked increases in the faithfulness of our church family, particularly as it relates to missions and so grateful for the stirring and the movement in that direction. And we have talked in terms of pray 517, uh, based on First Thessalonians 517, that we're to pray without ceasing, an attitude of prayer. And we've got to keep moving forward, keep encouraging one another, keep linking arms together and seeking the Lord. As we do that, the Lord's going to bless because when his name is honored, when his word is proclaimed, and people hear about Jesus, good things are going to happen. And they're not just good things, they're eternal things. That's my hope for us as a people. If you feel like you're out there in the wilderness somewhere right now, your prayer is not where it needs to be or where you want it to be, would you just start today and say, Lord, help me? Just help me, Lord. 
help me. I want to draw closer to you. He'll help you. He'll hear you. And he'll walk with you every step of the way. Let's bow our heads together as we close out our time together and ask the Lord to work in our midst. Father, we are in awe of your word. Thank you for teaching us about how to pray from the prayer of one of your servants. As we learn more about who you are and we make the most of coming into your presence and we're mindful of our sin, I pray that you would make us more like Jesus. Father, I pray now if there's anybody in this place today who needs to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, that they'd not leave here, but they would take that step and say, I want to know Jesus. I want to be saved. I want the gift of eternal life to be forgiven of my sins and to know that I'm going to get to heaven someday. Lord, would you change hearts right now? I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would be encouraged. Help us this week just to be reminded of how ever present you are with us. And because of that, that we'd want to know you more. We'd want to walk with you more faithfully. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.